Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9, that can be found on page 796 if you're using the, the black Bibles that are provided. We've been doing a, a series through this, uh, what's called Minor Prophet, um, written 500 and some years before our Lord Jesus um, came to earth and lived among us. So Zechariah chapter 9 today, and as you're finding that, imagine with me this morning that you are a medieval peasant. You've been conquered and you're being oppressed by evil people. And again, if you're picturing what I am in a medieval peasant, right, you don't, you don't have many resources yourself, you're, you're just kind of a weak and a simple community, <laughs> and you're being oppressed, you're being oppressed by evil people, and, and you long then for a leader. You long for a deliverer. You long for a king to come and save you. But now let's kind of adjust that slightly. Imagine that the, the oppressors are your leaders. You have an evil king over you. Imagine how much worse that would be, right? The very person that you had looked to to provide, looked to to protect, looked to to save and deliver, he's the one that's actually oppressing you and abusing you. How much more would you be longing for a good leader to come and rescue you, a godly leader to rule over you, to provide for you and protect you? Well, that is the situation facing the return to exiles in Zechariah chapter 9. Yes, it's been encouraging as we've gone through this to hear uh, from those prophetic visions that God in his mercy was going to return to them and there has been some momentum in rebuilding the temple, right? Doing this project, But, but please understand, things are still very difficult right now. The people of God are still under foreign rule. Remember when we've seen those dates, it's given in the year of King Darius' reign from Persia, right? The people of God are still under this foreign rule. They are still suffering under oppressive, foreign, ungodly leaders who do not follow the Lord and who care very little about the people. And it's into that suffering that God through Zechariah gives this oracle that we're going to study today, this, this prophecy from the Lord with the message that their suffering is temporary. God will bring judgment on those who are oppressing his people. God will bring forth a promised king who will rule Israel and the nations in righteousness and peace. That's the message we're going to see today. And as we are in Zechariah 9, uh, we're, we're kind of in the last section of the book now, entering the last section. Uh, Zechariah concludes with two oracles, two big prophecies. The first is uh, chapters 9 through 11 that we're going to consider this morning. And then the next is chapters 12 through 14. Both of those are introduced as the oracle of the word of the Lord. 
And so in this first oracle in chapters 9 through 11 that we'll study this morning, God's going to declare how they're going to get out of this mess. Better said, how they're going to be saved from the mess that they're in. That'll be chapters 9 and 10. And then in chapters, chapter 11 is going to talk about how they got into that mess to begin with. And I know in our um, Western minds that may seem a little backward, right? You know, like it seemed a little out of order. Like, But this is the way God chose to do it. And obviously he knows far better than us. So I've, I've tried to lay that out in the outline in your bulletins. And I think you'd be helped by, by seeing that as we go along, okay? I'll explain it. Let me say this up front, and I I will be explaining this along the way, but I want to point it out ahead of time. This oracle that we're studying this morning, this prophecy, is fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. There's going to be battle language and things, and that points us forward to the spiritual battle won by Jesus on the cross to bring our salvation through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has defeated our enemies of sin, death, and Satan. He has redeemed us from their bondage. So when we go through these chapters and we're seeing that kind of language, that's what we need to be thinking about, is the spiritual battle that Christ has won for us, for our salvation. So we begin in chapter 9, where verses 1 through 8 give the great news that God will defeat their enemies. Now these verses list a lot of geographic names, starting with Hadrach in verse 1, which is an area in northern Syria that encompassed Damascus, and then neighboring Hamath, and then it's going to move down the coast through Tyre and Sidon, and then talk about four of the five cities of the Philistines, and and I'll have to say their names in a minute, so I won't now. But just understand that for Zechariah's hearers, these are the current neighboring enemies of Israel. Of course, when we think of enemies of Israel, we think of the superpowers, right? Like uh, Assyria and Babylon and Persia. But here in chapter 9, the focus is on Israel's neighboring enemies, many of which are occupying lands that had once been a part of Israel's kingdom when it was in its heyday under King David. Okay? So God is going to put an end to the oppression of those enemies and he's going to restore the Israelite kingdom at its peak. That's the the language that's being used here that will be fulfilled spiritually by Christ and ultimately physically on his return. So let's begin in verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it. Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, Tyre has built herself a rampart, heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold... Right, you see how it's talking about, man, they're so powerful, they're so wealthy. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Right now we're talking about the Philistine cities, right? Remember, Philistia was always an enemy of Israel. Gaza, too, shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be in 
uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. God will defeat their enemies. This whole region will experience the fiery judgment of God, and that will leave it desolate. That's what these verses are portraying. Yet notice, even from the destruction of those nations, God is going to take some of those enemies and incorporate them into the people of God. Verse 7 speaks of a remnant who will attach themselves to the Lord and become part of his people. Becoming like a clan in Judah and like the Jebusites. And you say, well, who were the Jebusites? They were the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Uh, They were in Jerusalem when King David came and conquered Jerusalem. And rather than being destroyed, those Jebusites were absorbed into Judah. And it's saying the same thing is going to happen. Some of these Gentiles are going to become part of the people of God. And we saw this talked about at the end of chapter 8 last week. That in the midst of God judging his enemies, he's also saving some Gentiles. Grafting them into his people. Just like God took us, who were once his enemies because of our sin. And saved us and adopted us and grafted us in. He adopted us into the family of God. After judging the nations on the borders of the land, verse 8 says, God is going to return to encamp at his house, the temple, and protect the people from invaders. Look at verse 8. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard. This is the Lord speaking, right? So that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes. I mean, this is a a declaration of protection. God's going to return and defeat their enemies. He's going to dwell among them. He's going to protect them. This is great news, right? Great news that God's going to defeat their enemies. But we we might ask, well, how? What will this look like? How is God going to do this? Well, verses 9 through 13 now tell us that God will do this through his promised future king. Look at verse 9. It should sound familiar to you. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. This campaign over Israel's enemies would culminate in the triumphal entry of its king into Jerusalem. And so the people are exhorted to rejoice and shout and welcome their victorious king. Of course, this king is the promised son of David, the Messiah, who was to come, saving them from their enemies and ruling over them in righteousness. And that's what verse 9 highlights about this king. Right? This king brings salvation. He brings the blessing of the Lord, which, which indicates that he himself is obedient, right? Because he's secured those blessings through his obedience in the Mosaic Covenant. This promised king is not a wicked tyrant like they've been experiencing. He is righteous, and he is humble, and he brings peace as seen in the fact that he is riding on the colt of a donkey. The donkey is the symbol of peace, right? Sometimes royalty rode horses. Sometimes they rode donkeys. They rode horses when they were heading into battle and needed to conquer. They rode donkeys in times of peace, and he's coming in victory. This is a victory parade of the promised king. He has defeated Israel's enemies. He has secured peace. 
And now he's going to reign over them in righteousness and humility. Of course, many of you are, are seeing the, the fulfillment in this, aren't you? When Jesus came into Jerusalem on that Sunday before his crucifixion, on Palm Sunday, Jesus intentionally fulfilled this imagery to signal his messianic identity. I mean, he'd been walking the whole way, right? <laughs> but then once it came time to get in Jerusalem, he's like, all right, I need a donkey. <laughs> I need to fulfill this. Matthew 21.5, John 12.15, both quote Zechariah 9.9. When Jesus signaled this on that Palm Sunday, he was indicating he is the Messiah. Now, in Jesus' case, uh, the work still needed to be accomplished, right? In just a few short days, he would humbly die on the cross in the place of his people, paying the punishment for their sins, reconciling them to God, and Jesus would bring peace, saving his people from sin and death and the wrath of God. So, back to Zechariah 9. Verse 10, then, of Zechariah 9 highlights the peace that this promised king brings. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom, and the war horse from Jerusalem, that's the southern kingdom, and the battle bow shall be cut off. You don't need those weapons anymore because it's peacetime. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Again, this is prophetic language, right? Symbolism and, and picturesque and all that. But it's showing that God's going to destroy weapons of war. He's going to speak peace to the nations through his coming king. And peace is not just the absence of war, but it's salvation, which is going to be pictured down in verses 16 and 17. God's promised king, notice verse 10 says, will establish peace and he will enjoy universal reign over the nations, right? His rule shall be from sea to sea, verse 10 says, from the river to the ends of the earth. The Lord continues to address his people in verse 11, further describing this salvation that is coming. Verse 11, as for you also, because of the blood of... Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow, and I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword." Because of God's covenant commitment with his people, he will return to them and set the prisoners free. That's what these verses are showing. This deliverance and restoration are pictured as a new exodus. Setting them free from bondage and gathering them together as his people. Just like he did with them back in Egypt. Those who are set free, notice, end up participating in God's victory. Verse 13 pictures God using his people to overthrow opposition and help bring about this peace. Judah, again, the southern kingdom is the bow, while Ephraim, the northern kingdom, is the arrow. God's going to work through his people to further his kingdom of peace over the world powers, which here is represented by Greece. All right. So we've got God's going to defeat their enemies through his future king, delivering his people. We've already seen that kind of language, and we'll continue to see it now in verses 14 through 17. 
Look at 14. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts, remember the God of angel armies, will protect them. And they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl drenched with the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown... They shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. These verses portray the Lord as a great warrior, destroying his enemies, rescuing his people. Why? Because they are precious to him. God will save them. He will protect them. He will greatly bless them because he loves them. Verse 16 says his people are his flock. They are the precious jewels in his crown, like that hymn that we sometimes sing. God's people are his treasured possession, Exodus 19.5 says. So in the beauty of God's goodness and grace and power, he brings salvation to his people, defeating their enemies through his future king. Just as God had saved his people from Egypt in the Exodus by defeating their enemies... And in time, establishing, establishing them in the land under King David, so God will do it again, saving and establishing his people under David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And like I mentioned earlier, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. As the promised king, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus willingly laid down his life on the cross in the place of sinners, bearing the punishment that they deserve. And then having fully paid for the sins of his people, God the Father vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead on that third day. And he gave Jesus universal rule. Right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Jesus reigns now from the Father's right hand. And now through his gospel, through his spirit, Jesus proclaims peace to the nations. Sinners like you and me from every nation can be reconciled to God by turning from our sins and by faith embracing Jesus as Lord and Savior. Jesus now uses his weapons, his people, (laughs) to proclaim the gospel and pray for his kingdom to come. Jesus has defeated our greatest enemies of sin, death, and Satan. And one day, when he returns, that time on a white horse, Revelation 19 says, Jesus will eradicate our enemies once and for all. No more sin. No more death. No more crying. They're already defeated, and one day they'll be wiped out. So chapter 9 states that God will deliver his people and defeat their enemies through his future king. Secondly, then, we see in chapter 10, God will raise up new leadership to save and shepherd his people. This is really kind of explaining the same Story, but now it's focusing on the, the leadership. 
Chapter 10 is about the leaders of God's people. And the leaders are described as shepherds, right? Because like a shepherd, they were to gather, guide, protect, and provide for the people in their care. But the problem is in Israel's history is that they've, for the most part, had wicked, unfaithful leadership, right? Kings that, that strayed, kings that, as we'll see, you know, led the people into idolatry and, and formed these partnerships with pagan nations. And so the leadership, the failed leadership, was responsible for the, for the, the initial judgment, right, of them going into the exile, and what we're seeing now, now that God in his mercy has, has gathered the exiles back to Jerusalem, things have not changed. The current shepherds are still not good. They're leading the people astray. Which shouldn't be surprising because they're foreign shepherds now. Look at verse 1. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. Lack of a faithful shepherd. Verse 3, my anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. You see the footnote, the Hebrew, the male goats. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. Again, keep in mind, Israel had a very agricultural economy. Not hard for us to imagine, right? And so they depended on the spring rains in order to have successful crops come harvest time. So, why do we say that? Well, a temptation for Israel through the years then was uh, to look to pagan gods for those rains, right? Oh, man, we need these rains, and, you know, I don't know if, if, if Yahweh is going to provide them. So, you know, I've heard Baal provides rain. Why don't we go pray to Baal? Because we sure need that rain for our harvests, and that's what would happen again and again. Stuff like that. Whether it be rain, whether it be fertility, whether it be other kinds of blessings. They would look to foreign so-called gods. And again, oftentimes it was the very uh, leaders who were leading them into that uh, idolatry and, and breaking the covenant. They should not be praying to Baal or other false gods. They should be praying to the Lord. That's what in verse 1 says. He's the creator and Lord of all. The Lord is the one who brings the rain and provides the harvest. Pray to the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Be faithful to the Lord. The leaders of Judah should have rallied the people to pray to the Lord and be trusting in him. But instead, like I said, they led the people into idolatry and they abused their power to harm the people. This idolatry, this breaking of the covenant had led to the exile in the first place. And now the regathered exiles have no Jewish king, but instead they have foreign kings ruling over them. That's why they're called male goats. <laughs> they're outsiders, right? As the footnote says in verse 3. And these foreign leaders are not taking good care of God's flock at all. These wicked shepherds were leading God's people into sin again and again by committing idolatry. Once again, seeking the favor of pagan gods for, for the, their needs. And so we see in verse 3, the Lord is angry with Judah's current shepherds, current leaders. He will remove them 
And he will provide new shepherds for his flock. And these new leaders are described, this new leadership is described in verse 4. From him shall come the cornerstone. From him the tent peg, from God, right? From him the battle bow. From him every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them. And they shall put to shame the riders on horses. What it's saying is God's going to bring in godly leaders, described in verse 4 as a, a battle bow. Strong, powerful, a tent peg, providing support, providing stability and direction. Or excuse me, providing support. Support, then the cornerstone provides that stability and direction. That's describing the godly leadership. God's going to remove the oppressive foreign rulers, bring in godly leadership to shepherd his people. And verses 6 through 12 then describes what God will do through this new godly leadership. Verse 6 I will strengthen the house of Judah southern kingdom. I will save the house of Joseph, northern kingdom. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as, as though I had not rejected them. For I am the, the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim will become, shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord." God's going to rescue. He's going to reunite the northern and southern kingdoms as one nation. And under the new leadership, God will gather, save, strengthen his people, which results in joyful celebration. And this is, this is all further described then in verses 8 through 12. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them. And they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, right, in the exile, yet in far countries they shall rem- remember me. And with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. And I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea. And all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. What does that sound like? The exodus. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. You see, God's regathering of his people in these verses is described as another exodus. God powerfully redeeming his people from their enemies through the godly leadership. God will redeem his people and restore a relationship with them, strengthening them so they walk in his name to the praise of his glory. And now then the first three verses of chapter 11 wrap up this theme of leadership by stating that God will destroy the wicked foreign leaders of Judah. And in these verses 1 through 3, those wicked leaders are described as cedars of Lebanon, oaks of Bashan, and a thicket of Jordan. So he's brought in the godly leadership. Now he's going to judge the wicked leadership. Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Think about it. Huge cedars, mighty oaks, lush thickets. Those all seem so strong and prosperous. But God's going to destroy those wicked leaders. So the message of chapter 10 and just a little bit of 11 was God will raise up new leadership to save 
and shepherd his people. This too is ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Unlike Israel's wicked kings, both foreign and domestic, Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the righteous king. He loves and cares for his sheep. Jesus does, even to the point of laying down his life for his sheep, like we heard in our scripture reading in John 10. And again, putting these New Testament passages together, right? The good shepherd lays down his life, and then having died and rose again, Jesus is the cornerstone, isn't he? He's the cornerstone of the church, the holy temple made up of the people that Jesus saves to the glory of God. And what about this uniting? Through the gospel, Jesus restored the divided kingdom of Israel. As the gospel is believed first, think about Acts. The gospel is believed first in Jerusalem, the capital city of of Judah, the southern kingdom, right? And then Samaria, the old capital in the northern kingdom. And then once Israel is is reunited, the gospel goes forth to the ends of of the earth. So God is reuniting his people in the church by saving them. Through the gospel, God is taking people from every tribe, tongue, and nation and making them into one new man, the church, for his glory, tearing down the dividing wall of hostility. All right, you with me so far? So far in this oracle, God has declared that he will deliver and care for his people through his promised king, the Lord Jesus Christ. But why are God's people in this mess to begin with? I mean, I've already kind of talked about it a little bit, but how did God's people get into this situation where they were oppressed by wicked foreign shepherds? And here's the answer that we need to understand, lest we make the same mistake. How did they get into that mess? Because they rejected God as their shepherd. God's going to drive this truth home by having Zechariah perform two sign acts. That's going to take us through the rest of chapter 11. See, what God would often do with his prophets, you know, they were proclaiming a message and then sometimes he'd have them kind of like illustrate it (laughs) with their own lives, which actually sometimes involved some pretty hard stuff. Here it's not too bad on Zechariah. Both of these sign acts are going to show the people that they had rejected God as their shepherd. In the first sign act, Zechariah is commissioned to play the role of God as shepherd in in a portrayal of Israel's history to the time of the Babylonian exile in order to explain why God's people are ruled by these oppressive foreign leaders. Okay, so that's verse 4. Thus says the Lord my God, Become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them, slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, I have become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. 
For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hands of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king. And they shall crush the land and I will deliver none from their hand. Now things are being said here in the future tense, but only because Zechariah hasn't acted it out yet, right? It's future tense for him. But the events represented in this sign action have already taken place. Again, this is Israel's story, unfortunately. This is Israel's history. Verse 6 describes God's judgment coming upon Israel. And verse 5 gives a big reason why. Their own shepherds have no pity on them. Like I said, historically the leaders of the nation of Israel, particularly the kings, failed to rule with justice and righteousness. Instead of being good shepherds who protected and provided and, and guided the people, they used the flock to their own advantage by selling them. See, there's those political alliances. They sold them out. They sold them to foreign nations, foreign kings, which led to all kinds of corruption and idolatry and oppression. And so God's patience, what this is recounting again in the history of Israel, right, is that God's patience with his old covenant people and their leaders finally ran out. God brought the judgment of verse 6 upon them through the Assyrians conquering the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. And then the Babylonians conquering the southern kingdom of Judah in 586 B.C. So Zechariah has his instructions and now he begins actually acting it out in verse 7. So I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs. One I named Favor, the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep, and in one month I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed, and let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. So you see how he's acting it out? He takes two staffs to shepherd the flock, and these staffs have names, Favor and Union. But Israel's leadership, the three shepherds mentioned there, detested God. They didn't want God as their shepherd. So notice what Zechariah does to his staff in verse 10. And I took my staff favor and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I made with all the people. Peoples. Verse 11. So it was annulled on that day and the sheep traders who were watching me knew it was the word of the Lord. So the staff favor... The staff named Favor represents the Mosaic covenant that God made with the nation of Israel. Yet by their sin, Israel detested the Lord. Israel broke the covenant with God. Therefore, God handed them over to covenant curses as his judgment. And God considered the covenant annulled, which is portrayed by Zechariah breaking the staff called Favor. Then before he gets to the other... um, Staff, in verse 12, Zechariah gives the current people of God an opportunity to pay him for his prophecies. And this is a little odd to me, at least, but it's something else we're going to see fulfilled in Christ, or in in the experience of Christ. Verse 12, then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. And then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it, threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. So Zechariah said, hey, you know what? Why don't you pay me for my services? And they pay him 30 pieces of silver, which was the price of a slave. And I'm not sure if it's because the price was too meager or if it was even the fact that they would pay in, that, that paying any amount was insulting. I'm not sure which it is. But what is clear 
is that by them paying the 30 pieces of silver, this was another indication that the people had rejected God as their shepherd. It can't, it's not just their forefathers. They're doing it too. The people are just as responsible for their leaders and, and just then as responsible for uh, bearing God's judgment. Because the payment was a sign of the rejection of God as shepherd, Zechariah is told to throw the money to the potter in the temple. Not too long ago, we studied Gospel of Matthew, uh, this part on Passion Week, right? The Gospel of Matthew references this action because Judas is paid 30 pieces of silver for his betrayal of Jesus. And Judas eventually throws the, the silver into the temple as an expression of his worldly sorrow, all in the context of the Jews rejecting Jesus as their shepherd, just like the Jews throughout history kept rejecting God as their shepherd. Then for good measure, Zechariah breaks the other staff in verse 14. Look, look there with me. Then I broke my second staff, union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. This represented how a generation after Solomon, the kingdom was divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. So, again, all of this is to show how they got in this mess. (laughs) The breaking of the two staffs shows the division of the kingdom and that the, shows that the division of the kingdom and the exile came about, why? Because the people persistently rejected the Lord as their shepherd. Finally, then, in verses 15 through 17, Zechariah performs a second sign act showing that the people have received Received the current leadership they deserved for the rejection of the Lord. Verse 15, then the Lord said to me, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. So now he's no longer portraying God as shepherd, he's portraying a foolish shepherd. For behold, I'm raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed or seeking the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered. Let his right eye utterly blinded. So here the sign act is Zacharias is told to take equipment of a foolish shepherd. And again, a wicked shepherd, right? We're not told what that equipment is. It was probably something that related to shepherding. But it's, it's foolish. It probably looked pathetic. Maybe like a pathetic looking staff or something. As I was thinking about what that could have looked like it'd be like me showing up at, at the Dodgers tryout with a plastic bat or something right you know like, hey I'm here to play baseball guys you know and they're like you're worthless man what you can't use that that was the sign act here and again all of that was to show that because the people had rejected God as their shepherd God had handed them over to oppressive foreign leaders who did not care about them, rather oppressed them, took advantage of them, and they get, trust me, the people get this. They know it. They're, they're living it right now. But the good news is, verse 17 says that in time, God's going to bring judgment upon those foreign leaders as we've already heard. So with this, I, I'll, I'll wrap all this up, Okay. The oppressed returned exiles there in Zechariah's time were in this mess because they and their forefathers before them had rejected God as their shepherd. Please get that. Don't get lost in the details. Get that. They're there because they rejected God as their shepherd. And this continues to be humanity's problem today. 
in every generation, rejecting God as their shepherd. By nature, we all reject God as our loving shepherd and ruler. Instead, we want to rule ourselves. And the Bible says our sin separates us from God. That rejection of God separates us from him and actually makes us enemies of God and leaves us headed for eternal judgment in hell. That is true of every one of us by nature, apart from Christ. But God, in his great mercy and love, has graciously provided a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, to save sinners like us through his finished work on the cross. And what we've been reminded of today is Jesus is Lord and he is a loving shepherd. He's a righteous king and a loving shepherd. He does everything that a leader and king should do. Jesus saves, he protects, he nourishes, he guides, he provides for his people all through this life and in in the life to come. And so I I hold up to you Jesus, the good shepherd. And Jesus, by his spirit now, the risen Jesus from his throne on heaven, by his spirit now is calling people to come to him in repentance and faith. To enter his kingdom. To come under his loving protection, and care. And the Bible says his sheep hear his voice. They hear that call to to come to Jesus and follow him. Do you hear his voice today? Young person sitting out there, do you hear the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ calling you to come into his flock today, to enter his kingdom today. Calling you to turn from your sins. Calling you to quit rejecting God. Quit trying to be your own ruler. Quit living for yourself, but live for the God who made you and and Jesus who died for sinners like you. Jesus is calling people to turn from their sins and to trust in him alone as their Savior and Lord. And I pray that many here today hear that voice calling them and that God will grant you then the grace to respond in repentance and faith. I pray that many of you will come to Jesus today Experience the salvation that he he gives. Experience and know the peace that Jesus brings. Peace with God. Knowing that your eternity is secure. And then loving care, faithful care all your days. Come to Jesus. And Christian today... May this oracle in Zechariah remind you that Jesus is our shepherd king. In love, he has delivered us. He has rescued us. He has defeated our enemies. 
And he faithfully now cares for us through his word, spirit, and church. Let us praise him. Let us praise Jesus, our shepherd king. Let us depend on him and follow him all of our days. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing a final song of praise.